Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, listen now to this introduction to the reading today. These verses from the epistle of James include what the epistle is best known for. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers. The theological substance of this passage, however, lies in its deep connection to the rest of James's theology. Here and throughout the letter of James, James drives towards the point of theological integrity. Our wholehearted, consistent, comprehensive devotion to God, which requires of us a particular life and character. James compels us to live in ways congruent with our origins in God, making the case that if we live by God's truth, the truth will make us free. James's goal here is not simple adherence to the law or Torah, but the kind of ingrained habitual knowledge that comes from repetition and practice, from putting our faith into action. Hear now the word. You must understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, For human anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to take care of the orphans and widows in distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Amen. So with the start of our new sermon series, we're starting a new song that we'll sing every week together. So uh, follow the choir. They will teach you this morning. strides we've made for all our blessings 
Beloved, the church was saddened this past week to learn of the death of one of its most prominent members, someone else. Now, someone's passing creates a vacancy that would be difficult to fill. Else has been with us for so many years. Someone did far more than the average person's share of the work. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, or a meeting to attend, one name was on everybody's list someone else. It was common knowledge that someone else was among the most generous givers in the church. Whenever there was a financial need, everyone just assumed that someone else would make up the difference. Someone else was a wonderful person, sometimes appearing to be superhuman. But I mean, after all, a person can only do so much. And were the truth known, I think everyone expected a little too much of someone else. Now someone else is gone. And we wonder what we are going to do. Someone else left a wonderful example, but who is going to do the things that someone else did? Well, I've been given four names this week. Four names appeared on my desk. Everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. As it so happens, an important job needs to be done, and everybody was asked to do it. Everybody was sure somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. And somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. And everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Beloved, this morning we embark on a brand new sermon series entitled, I, James, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. And as the title suggests, we will, over the coming weeks, explore the epistle of James, contemplating the ways this exquisitely written, yet surprisingly simple letter, reminds us of our vital connection to God and to one another, and our non-negotiable commitment 
to turn words into deeds by living out our faith in the world. And make no mistake, this little letter is all about action. Over and over, the author pounds home the idea that words like faith and love are verbs. That Christians and the communities that they create should not be known for their words, but for their deeds, because our broken world needs a little less talk and a little more action after all. James reminds his listeners and all of us that in order to completely live a thriving, life-giving faith, we must not fall into the trap of a religion that marks only our contemplation and does not find itself in our actions. And after all, there is work to be done. There is work to do. So many opportunities lie before us every moment of every single day. There's work to be done, work that needs to be done. And again, everybody is asked to participate and everybody is sure somebody will do it. Anybody can do it, but sometimes nobody does it. And when that happens, somebody always gets frustrated because in reality, it's everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it. Nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And like I said, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. The letter of James is profoundly practical, shockingly candid, and extremely relevant to every generation. The letter itself is only five chapters long, but as Rev. Amy stated, it is packed with powerful teachings that build upon the life and teachings of Christ. The author's paradigm is readily understood. Our actions matter because it is not only a relationship with Jesus to which we are called. We are called to live here and now as God's kingdom citizens, as God's disciples and pilgrim people, as God's covenant family obeying God's command and thereby furthering the creator's reign and glorifying God with all our hearts with all of our head, and yes, with our hands as well. Now, by way of background, they let me be a Bible nerd for just a minute, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to set you up for the rest of the series and give you a little bit of background. I have to tell you that the date and the authorship of the letter are a matter of debate among scholars, even to this day. And part of that debate comes from the name of the letter itself, James. It is a name that appears um, many times, it's unclear how many times in the Greek text, but I've counted no less than 42 times where that name appears in the New Testament alone. The majority are in Mark, and ironically, the name never appears in the Gospel of John. It was obviously kind of a popular name in the first century, so it makes it hard to tell who wrote it. Still, some of the earliest church fathers, as early as the second and third century, Origen and Eusebius, assumed that this James is the one often referred to as the Lord's brother. In Galatians and in Acts, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And if that's true, then the letter itself can be dated somewhere around 40s, early 50s CE. It is one of what we call seven general or Catholic epistles. These include James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Jude. That term Catholic means general. It is applied to letters in the New Testament that address groups of churches in big geographic areas, as opposed to correspondences that address a specific individual or a specific faith community. Verse 2 reveals who the letter is written to, and that's important because, listen, you're reading somebody else's mail. You need to know who it's written to. 
It is written to quote the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So these are Jewish Christians that are scattered living among the diaspora. The epistle envisions established settled communities that hold meetings, have leaders, which they call elders, and recognize some individuals in those communities as teachers, a category to which the author appears to include himself. The members of the community would no doubt regard themselves as among the poor, but they are assumed, we learn in chapter two, to have the means to relieve each other's needs. And so even though there is a slight resentment of the rich, it does not appear from the text that these communities are prevented from inviting the rich visitor into their meeting. Indeed, the forcefulness of the attack of James in chapter two on the rich and in chapter five may indicate that they were a little too ready to invite the rich folks in um, because of selfish reasons, right? So we, that, that's kind of where we're at. They are not subject to persecution per se. Um, the oppression and abuse that we read about in chapter two is more likely um, it reflects a legal and economic pressure that can be put on the disadvantaged by those more powerful in society. It's not an attack on their faith per se, and not subject to external attack. They are also seemingly untroubled by internal divisions related to doctrine or ideological things or economic or social grounds. And you can contrast James with the letter to the Corinthians of Paul, um, where that community is just littered with all of those, those problems that Paul addresses. No, James is addressing tensions of a personal nature tensions in personal relationships within a small society. Things like anger, jealousy, slander, and criticism. Now I know none of that stuff happens today, but there you go. They need to be roused, you see. And this is what James is doing, rousing them from inactivity to positive action, rather than being deterred from a misguided sense of enthusiasm. Now turning to the text right in the middle of our reading that Rev. Amy presented, we zoom in on the central idea of our time together this morning. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the words and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they were like. And on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, he writes, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. So there you go. Have a donut on your way out. Within those words, you see, we get to the real crux of the matter for James, the real content of true religion, according to the epistle. Be doers, not hearers. Christ calls us to action rather than comfort, to radical discipleship rather than armchair Christianity. To hear and not do is to miss the point entirely. It's actually worse than that. To hear and not do is to understand and yet refuse to act. And in refusing to act, we demonstrate that maybe we didn't really believe it after all. Action is the necessary, logical, and only response, according to the author, of faithful listening. I mean, beloved, our faith, whatever it is, in the shadow of the cross in an empty tomb, it is one of both understanding and action, of faith and deed, of love in thought and in motion. When we hear God speak lovingly of the poor, 
the widowed, the orphan, the hurt, the sick, the oppressed, the unloved, the least, the last, the broken, the unwanted, the dying, the defenseless. We should know immediately that we are called to love as he loved, to give as he gave, to serve as he served. According to James, if we hear the word of God or read the word of God without putting it into action, I mean, well, quite frankly, we're deceiving ourselves. It's like looking in a mirror. You know what I'm talking about? Finding that your hair is a little messed up. Got a smudge on your face. A little bit of broccoli and teeth, maybe, from lunch, yeah. You see it's there, but then you just walk away and don't do anything about it, right? Just forget about it. James's point, though, it's, it's not about physical appearances. It's about the heart. I want you to hear me. The holy writings, the scriptures, are a mirror that we can look into and see our own mess to see where there's a smudge on our heart, to see how God wants us to enact the word in the world. I think this is especially relevant for our time. The Bible, you see, is not a searchlight that reveals other people's shortcomings, according to James. It is a mirror that reveals our own. It summons us to a higher level of living. And when we consider that phrase, the word of God, I know that's troubling for some, but it's important to remember that, at least in James, the word of God is primarily Jesus Christ. In speaking about Christ in the Gospel of John, verse 114, it says the word, or the logos, became flesh and lived among us. The word of God then is not some abstract principle, it's not a theoretical notion, it is a concrete and embodied word. When the word became flesh in Christ, you see, it not only spoke, but it healed the sick. It, 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 it touched the outcast. It, it cuddled children. It overturned temple tables. It did stuff. And since the word became flesh and lived among us, it's the very nature of God then, I would argue, that it is living and active to be not only spoken and heard, but to be enacted. Therefore, we, I think, misrepresent the very nature of God's word when we hear it and we don't do it. When we talk a big game about our Bible or whatever else and don't put it into practice. Jesus in James here is calling us simply to embody the word of God by doing it. I know what you're saying. Man, that's a big book, Pastor. Look at, look at the size of that thing. That's a huge book. So many commands in the Old Testament. So many teachings in the New Testament. Where on earth are we supposed to begin to be doers of the word, right? Well, James gives you a, a little offering here. In verse 27, he simply says, Pure and undefiled religion before God is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. That's it. Now, I have to tell you, friends, that's a powerful statement because orphans and widows were some of the most vulnerable persons in the ancient world, especially orphans. They represented disadvantaged demographics within their society 
that you and I can barely even fathom. So a primary way to do the word of God, therefore, is to simply care for persons who are vulnerable, to love them without reciprocity, to be with these people that are marginalized, to help them, to give them something to drink when they're thirsty. My goodness, give them something to eat when they're hungry. In Bruce Shelley's book, Bruce Shelley is a historian, wonderful book. It's called Church History in Plain Language. I'd highly recommend it. He provides three simple reasons for the wildlife spread of Christianity in the early life of the church. Number one, he says, the early Christians were moved by burning convictions. I mean, think about it. Whew, they had seen it. They had seen him rise from the dead. The event had happened. And it had made an indelible impact on them. God had invaded their time, and that creative and present power just captivated them and energized them. The second thing is, a little academic, he says that the Christian message itself met this passionately felt need in the hearts of most of the people. Amidst the philosophical soil and the backdrop of uh, a system called Stoicism, the active love of these Christians expressed kind of filled in the gaps of Stoicism and made life complete. But most importantly, and this is the point, Mr. Shelley writes, quote, the practical expression of Christian love was probably among the most powerful causes of Christian success. Tertullian, an early church father, tells us that the pagans remarked, quote, see how these Christians love one another. And beloved, the pagans' words were not irony. They meant them. They were baffled by these weird Christians loving everybody, right? The compassion of these Christian communities seemed boundless. They showed it to everyone, love and care to widows, orphans, those condemned in mines and prisons, the sick, the dying. They didn't care who it was, whether it was one of their own or somebody else's. They just loved them and cared for them. One of the Roman emperors from 361 to 363 CE, Julian, the cousin of Constantine, he was called Julian the Apostate, called so because unlike his cousin, he rejected Christianity. And in his disgust, he, he wrote a funny remark in one of his writings that I just love. These godless Galileans, he writes, Ugh. they feed not only their poor, but ours as well. I don't know. It would seem the most effective and clearest form of evangelism in the life of the early church was found in the unrestrained love and care of these Christians poured forth upon everyone, themselves and others. And beloved, James saw this. He knew this. He was a keen observer of human nature. He paid close attention to the details of everyday living. He, he noticed generous acts, the, the little bitty small gifts and the gestures. He, he listened to the words that were being used. He knew that such small acts were the nuts and the bolts of everyday life, holding together the scaffold, if you will, on which we build a community and maintain a social order. And finally, our text this morning reveals that while James is concerned with what you're doing, he also seems a bit concerned with how you're doing it. Did you catch that? He wants you to do stuff, but he's paying attention to how you do it. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Don't miss that rhythm. It's really important. It's like a little dance. One quick, two slows, right? One quick, two slows. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, regrettably. I know me included. Most of the time we like to go with one slow and two quick. <laughs> slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to anger, right? But James counsels us on a practical morality here. See, that's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. He tells us that what we do matters and how we do it and what comes out of our mouths can make a difference for good or ill. Now, a quick footnote. I want to be crystal clear on this idea of anger because, to be quite honest, the Christian tradition is a bit mixed on this. I mean, after all, isn't anger a good thing, preacher? Is there such a thing as constructive anger? Maybe so. But notice, James does not deny the importance or the strength of anger. He does not tell us to put it away, to swallow it, to stuff it. Rather, he encourages us to transform anger into a virtue. Be quick to listen, he says, slow to speak, and therefore slow to anger. Loved ones, it is right to be angry over injustice and oppression. But anger at least the kind we are talking about, is of a different flavor. And I think to get it, I have to go all the way back to my childhood and read this verse in the King James Version of the Bible. If my wife is watching at home, her eyes are rolling so hard they're falling out of her head at this point. <laughs> so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. This is my favorite part. And slow to wrath. Oh, it's a good word, isn't it? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. At its best and rightfully expressed, anger passionately protects and defends a loved good. Anger turns wrathful when it fights for its own selfish cause and not for justice and when it fights dirty. Dallas Willard, wonderful philosopher and professor, he once wrote these words that have always stuck with me. Feelings are, he writes, with few exceptions, good servants, but they are disastrous masters. So control yourself, James counsels, because anger, after all, is only one letter short of danger. And that's hard work, I get it, especially for those of us that are quick to judge and patient with ourselves, with others, especially when we're in a disagreement or we've already made up our minds and just not going to hear about it. To resist such impatience, it requires discipline. And so James tells us, just rid yourselves of all sordidness and growth of rank wickedness. Reverse your direction, he says. Cultivate the virtues of discerning and a welcoming spirit. In the end, James calls us to make a distinction, I think, between a worthless and a worthwhile religious morality. The discernment of the difference between these two kinds of religious morality, I have to tell you, it's an ongoing process. You're never going to quite be there. To exist in a fluid relationship with the changing circumstances in which we find ourselves every single day. Hence, James calls us, all of us, to a continual accountability and a deeper appreciation of the fluctuations of our emotional lives. 
By acknowledging and taking responsibility, you see, for our anger, we have the opportunity to express self-control, to become decision makers, architects of relationships, builders of beloved community. This is what James requires of us. He calls us to be responsible, to take seriously our emotions, our religious faith, and our behavior. Beloved, what we do matters. And what comes out of our mouths and the way we do it can make a difference for good or ill. But as powerful as words are, and you all know about this point, I love the power of words. As powerful as they are, it is our actions that speak louder than words. Words may touch our emotional life and help us anticipate what is going to happen and construct a reality, but our actions establish the structures of meaning that build our worlds. Through faithful activity, we create and recreate ourselves in trustworthy ways and help build worlds worthy of trust. Actions add value to our words and give them life. And it's in that way, I think, that morality has the practical aim, all morality, of creating relevance, meaning, and integrity in the world. One of the true geniuses of the 20th century was a man named Albert Schweitzer. You ever heard of Albert? Oh, lovely man. He was an exceptional organist, an outstanding medical doctor, a brilliant Bible scholar, and I didn't know this, received a Nobel Peace Prize in 1952. At one point in his career, Schweitzer uh, surprisingly, shockingly, decided to leave his life of privilege and prestige in Germany in order to become a full-time missionary in the Congo. Africa. He went and did medical mission work at hospitals deep in the jungle. And during a BBC interview at this time, Schweitzer was asked why he left this amazing life in Germany to go to the Congo? And he replied with one sentence, I have decided to make my life my argument. Now, beloved, I know, I know this is a lot. I know it is. It's hard. It's hard work. Trust me, I know. The pain, the suffering, the streams into our brains from every direction, it leaves us weary, confused, bewildered. I see it every day. I see it every single day. And some days, I feel like all I can do is just, just feel, just weep sometimes. But I am hopeful. I'm hopeful because of you, because I have been witness to something else. In the past two years that I have walked among you, I have seen the love of Christ pouring out from you in a myriad of ways. I have seen volunteers get down on their hands and knees and scrub the very spaces that we now sit in. I have seen others tend the grounds pulling up weeds, planting flowers, mowing grass. I've seen others comfort the grieving at memorials. Others still selflessly give their time to stuff a backpack, deliver food, donate needed items, teach classes, drive a bus, sing a song, usher, the list goes on and on. I have seen and heard you celebrate together, break bread together, 
and I personally have reveled and found comfort in the laughter of children as they bounce down our hallways and sing praises with their little angelic voices. You, St. Andrew, each one of you, all of you collectively, provide a courageous, active love. And believe me, my friends, this is what we must continue to do. We must imagine a future and make it so. In this way, we can envision ourselves as early signs of God's new creation. We can begin by embracing the whole of ourselves and taking responsibility for the constructive and destructive potentials within us. Living this way, I believe, can increase, increase our critical discernment. It can foster development in persons and in a community. And such living, I am sure, when joined by the faithfulness of so many others, can become an unstoppable current that will transform this world. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.